Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a non-profit, non-partisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. He wanted to meet in Pakistan. We said, no, 
uh, you come to Afghanistan, he finally comes to Afghanistan. He's in a vehicle uh, and he's on the far side and uh, the security guys are there and they're a little concerned because he gets out on the far side rather than getting out on the side where everybody was. And so they run around uh, and they, uh, they ask him to take his hands out of his pocket. And at that point, he sets off a suicide vest that killed seven of our intelligence officers and wounded a number of others. It was a huge explosion uh, that took place. And so when I was informed that we had lost seven CIA officers, uh, nothing could be worse. Uh, you know, I think we may have lost a few more uh, in uh, when we, we lost one of the embassies uh, in, uh, in in Africa, but we never lost that many in one suicide bombing uh, that way. And what happened was that uh, immediately went back to Washington. Uh, obviously, we had to we alerted the families. I went uh, to uh, greet the bodies when they came back at Dover Air Base. Uh, and then went to each of the funerals for uh, those families uh, that had lost a loved one. And, I mean, two things. Number one, every, every family said to me, you know, this is obviously, we're, we're deeply impacted by the loss of our loved one. But I want you to know that they would not have won to have been any place else but where they were. They were dedicated to what they were doing. And number two, make sure you get the people that were involved in this. And I'm committed to those families that we do that. And we did that. And these were people in their 30s. I mean, it was, no, no, I, I, no, I, I didn't no. say that was the worst thing. It seemed to me reading the book that that was the no, worst thing. No, it's true. But it wasn't all terrible. Uh, his whole name was Eagle. He was required to ride in the back of an SUV. I guess that was for safety. He had to check his cell phone at the door of Wiley. Nobody could have a cell phone. I guess that was for security, too. And he had an Italian chef named Freddy, and he got to choose the menu himself, which is often nice, and had dinners for his uh, fellow chiefs of intelligence from around the world. Now, the question is, which intelligence service impressed you the most? Which is the best in the world, aside from our own, we like to think? Well, there's no question in my mind that uh, our intelligence service is the best in the world in terms of the people we have. I, when I went to the CIA, you know, it's a, it was a different experience for me because I'd been in Congress, been in the White House, uh, worked on budgets, and uh, I wasn't quite sure that, that the president was calling the right Panetta when he asked me to the CIA. You think he might have called Sylvia? You think Sylvia Panetta, your wife, runs Rinsky too. Very sharp on it. Yeah, but uh, I, so, I, when I got that job, I, you know, went, I, I said I, I accept the challenge and went there and immediately uh, realized that I was dealing with very professional, dedicated people uh, who are not Democrats or Republicans, they're just good Americans trying to do the job of protecting this country. And I was very impressed with uh, the quality of individuals that I had to work with. CIA has several important sections. Uh, that, that make it a very self-contained operation. We have an analysis section that analyzes the intelligence coming in. We have an operations part of the CIA that basically does the work of uh, trying to get spies to work for us, develop resources, develop assets, and conduct operations. And 
we were doing a lot of operations when I was there at the CIA. We have a group that deals with technology, does communications, does makeup, does all of the, uh, all of the things you have to do uh, if you're working in the spy business. And then lastly, we have a whole support section that provides the housing and the communication and uh, the transportation and everything necessary to do the job. The president tells me uh, to do a mission, I can do it. It's a self-contained operation. I don't have to run around trying to deal with the rest of the bureaucracies in Washington, which is damn good, by the way. Uh, I can basically get the job done. Uh, so that makes, it makes the CIA a very unique uh, agency. The one that uh, I think you know, I, I'm most uh, impressed with, and, and there are a lot of good intelligence agencies, uh, in, particularly in the European area, we, we have a group called the Five Eyes, which involves Britain uh, and uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and Canada, and others. And all of them have uh, very good spy operations. But the one that I thought was the most effective in terms of being able to get out there and do what they had to do is Mossad in Israel. They, they, uh, they have an intelligence operation that uh, is really first class in the way they do it. And of course, they deal with threats. They're concerned about threats in the Middle East. They're concerned about threats to Israel. Uh, and uh, they are very effective at, uh, at doing it. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the things I've said is that I worry a great deal that the battlefield of the future is cyber attacks. And that cyber technology is now reaching a point where I think you could literally cripple a country uh, by using sophisticated viruses uh, and deploying those viruses. And uh, the one thing we did with the Israeli intelligence is work very closely with them in the cyber arena because I mean, both, both agencies had a great deal of expertise. Uh, we were able to develop defenses against cyber, uh, cyber attacks. And very frankly, we also developed uh, aggressive. Uh, Are you talking about Iran? Iran, Iran was obviously one of the areas we were most concerned with. Uh, but uh, we're concerned about other countries as well. I think the great danger now is that terrorist groups like ISIS and others could get a hold of cyber technology and without having to deploy people could actually insert the kind of virus into a system that could virtually take down our electric grid system in this country, could take down our financial systems, our government systems. Uh, it is a real possibility, and I've said this publicly, that we could have a cyber Pearl Harbor attack on this country that could literally paralyze the country. That's why we really do have to take whatever steps we can to try to protect ourselves in that arena. You had probably become Secretary of Defense by the time the Syrian Civil War broke out. And you write that you favored arming the rebels, so the Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, if some of the rebels, if you could find some to arm, and there were some, uh, had, been, had been given weapons. Wouldn't it have made any difference to the situation with ISIS? Would it perhaps have prevented the rise of ISIS and its takeover in Iraq and part of Syria, parts of Iraq and part of Syria? You know, it's, uh, in those situations, it's hard to say you know, what would or would not have happened. Uh, all, all, all I thought at the time was that it was, worth, it was worth the risk of doing it because we were dealing with sheer chaos in Syria. Sheer chaos. Uh, we had, obviously, Assad uh, was taking steps to, uh, uh, to kill people, use chemical weapons against people. 
uh, was, it, I mean, it, it was in almost every sense of the word genocide that was going on with the Syrian people as a result of what Assad uh, was doing there. Uh, but on the other hand, the opposition groups were in turmoil. There was, there was at least a hundred different groups. They ranged from Al-Qaeda on one extreme to uh, Hezbollah on the other extreme, plus everybody in between. Nobody knew who was in charge. Nobody wanted to work together. Nobody came together. And so, you know, the president had said, Assad has to come down. And we thought, CIA made the proposal, that what we ought to do is to try to go in to provide assistance uh, to the opposition groups, to provide weapons to the opposition group to be able to confront Assad. But in doing that, identify those groups that could, could be the most, the most effective at not only countering Assad, but could provide for hopefully some kind of political transition. So the idea was to go in and establish credibility by giving them the arms they needed. That was the recommendation. Uh, I think you know, Secretary Clinton, Dave Petraeus, and others, uh, as well as myself and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, supported the recommendation. Uh, but the President decided not to do it because, to, to, you know, and I understand this, he was concerned that those weapons might possibly get, get into the wrong hands. I understand that. That's a legitimate concern. But I nevertheless thought in that kind of situation, with the chaos that was going on, that it was worth taking that step because we had to identify those members of the opposition who could present a credible force. And we're now doing that. I mean, obviously, the effort now is to try to identify the, those opposition groups, to arm them, and to be able to give them what they need, not only to confront ISIS, but to confront, confront uh, Assad as well. Uh, so I, I think we're, we're now at least in, in the right place in trying to do that, but I still worry a great deal about uh, the situation in Syria. I, I, I can see our ability in Iraq to be able to push ISIS back. What I still don't see clearly is what happens in Syria. It is such a terrible situation. Well, another very difficult situation is Ukraine. It seems to have subsided somewhat. Uh, we've been saying that we're in another Cold War, but I have a friend in Iowa, a former senator, who calls from time to time to express his misgivings about Putin. He called today, in fact. He says, look, this is not a Cold War. This is a hot war. And America doesn't understand it. There are certain powers in Europe that don't understand it. Does it concern you? Very much. Uh, you know, it's been 20 years since the wall came down. Uh, the Berlin Wall. And we thought at that point that the Cold War had ended. Uh, and indeed, we reached out, developed uh, you know, relations with the Russian leadership. Uh, we thought that we had put all of that behind us. What Putin is now doing in the Ukraine uh, basically has introduced a new chapter in the Cold War. Uh, I think that uh, the use of forces to take the Crimea the use of Russian forces to, be, to begin to try to undermine the Ukraine uh, as he's doing, I think is, uh, is a step that tells me that Putin you know, is willing to do whatever is necessary to try to get Russian influence to spread uh, across the former Soviet Union republics. I think he wants to do that. I think he wants to divide east from west, uh, and he's prepared to take that kind of action. I think it's very important for us to stop Putin now. 
not allow him to get away with what he's doing, but to stop him now. And I, you know, I, would, well, I, I thought there were several steps that, that should have been taken uh, early on in dealing with the, the Ukraine. Number one, obviously, sanctions, bringing the countries of Europe together to implement sanctions, and they did that. Uh, but secondly, also supporting NATO in those adjoining countries so that they have the equipment, they have the presence in those countries to make very clear uh, to Russia that we will not tolerate uh, Putin moving into any of the uh, NATO countries, that we would respect uh, the provision in NATO that says that uh, if, if an attack takes place in any NATO country, we will, we will respond, Article 5. Uh, thirdly, I thought that it was important to provide arms to the Ukrainians. I, I, don't, I don't know why, frankly, we've hesitated on that front. If you've got Russians there with tanks, if you've got Russians with uh, all kinds of sophisticated equipment and artillery, then I think the United States ought to be providing military aid to the Ukrainians uh, to try to confront that. And, and I, I do believe we should have done that as well. Uh, in addition to that, I would have resurrected missile defense. Uh, we took missile defense off the table because the Russians didn't like it. Uh, they always thought it was aimed at them. But I think based on their behavior and what Putin was doing, I would have said, we're going to put missile defense back on, on the table. And we're going to start working with these countries in NATO to establish uh, missile defense. And then lastly, I think that ultimately we want to be helping to provide additional energy, energy supplies to those countries there, so they aren't totally dependent on Russian energy. Uh, Russia clearly uses energy as blackmail to force these countries to do what they want. We can't let them get away with that. It's going to take a while, but I think ultimately we want to be providing additional energy supplies to those countries so that they have a diverse supply that doesn't have them boxed in by Russian energy. You mean permit the export? I think, we should, I think we should permit the export of our fuel in order to be able to provide that kind of support. Do you have any idea where Putin has been the last 11 days? <laughs> <laughs> You're a spy. You've been a spy. <laughs> I have not seen the latest intelligence. Uh, and, uh, you know, he used to. This isn't unusual. I, I think Putin, every once in a while, would disappear, whether you go to the Black Sea or whether you know, God knows what's going on. But uh, I, I think when when that happened, I was not surprised that he was away. He likes to do that, and then he comes back. And I wouldn't read a hell of a lot into that, although I know a lot, there's been a lot of speculation. One of my favorite chapters in your book is about something called ghost stories. Uh, this is an FBI operation. It had to do with some sleeper agents who were Russian and in the United States living very normal American lives as real estate agents, travel agents, teachers, and so forth. They had children who were growing up as Americans, had no idea what their uh, parents were up to. And I want to tell you, it's exactly like the show The Americans, which comes on tonight at 9 o'clock. If you and I could, if we could hurry and get through this, we could get home in time. <laughs> Seriously, Medvedev, who then was President Putin, was Prime Minister, you remember that when you met, was coming to Washington, uh, and the FBI was going through with the arrest, and you, you confronted your, your counterpart and said, yeah. hey, what's going on? And, and he said, yes, they're all. That's right. It was, uh, you know, speaking of Putin, 
uh, this was, I mean, Putin had used this kind of tactic when he was with the KGB, and actually it goes back to even the 20s, where the Russians basically would send individuals into a country, uh, young people, who would then establish roots in that country, get married, get into the communities, join the Rotary Clubs, join uh, you know, the other club, community clubs, uh, go, have children, have their children go to school, and then eventually work their way into sensitive agencies in order to spot. That, that was the whole point. Fortunately, we had a, uh, a source that uh, indicated that, that this was going on. And the combination of CIA and FBI were able to basically do surveillance on, on about 10 individuals that were involved in this uh, spy operation. Uh, we followed it for a while. Then what happened was we got to a point where one of them was, was we had found out it was going back to Russia. And we were a little concerned that that was going to tip off people and that uh, we might lose that opportunity. So we decided to go with, uh, with an arrest of each of them uh, at the time. Well, Medvedev was visiting with the president at the time. I remember going to the National Security Council and saying, you know, we're going to do this. And there was a little nervousness, you know, among uh, some of the people around the table that we really ought not to do this right now because we've got Medvedev there. And I said, well, look, I said, we've got Russian spies here. I said, let me tell you, if you don't do this, let me tell you what the Washington Post Headlines. <laughs> you were right. I said, you know, that uh, that we found we had a bunch of, of Russian spies, and, and we did not decide to arrest them because we were concerned about offending Medvedev. I said, I don't think that will read too well. And so uh, they said, well, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. So they decided, you know, let's have the president meet with Medvedev, have Medvedev, you know, go to, back to Russia, and then do the arrest. And we did that. So we arrested them. Uh, and uh, arrested, and, and very frankly, their children didn't even know that their, their families were involved. Yeah. And they didn't want to go back to Moscow. No, they didn't want to go back to Moscow. A lot of the kids did not want to go back to Moscow. But you didn't want to have custody of them. No, we didn't want to do, we didn't know where the hell we were going to do with them. <laughs> so we said, you know, we'll just do the whole package. So I called my counterpart, I called my counterpart in Russia, and I said, uh, and he's a, you know, he looks like somebody out of Central Casting. Uh, and I said, uh, look, uh, we've got your agents. We know they're your spies. Uh, and he said, through an interpreter, he said, yes, they are. Which was, actually, that was a change. Normally, they would deny it. But he said, yes, they are. And I said, look, uh, we're interested in seeing if we can work out an exchange. Because there were some people that the Russians were holding that we wanted. And we thought perhaps we could work out a chance. And so I, I offered that to him as a possibility. And he said, I will have to check with Putin. Uh, not Medvedev. Not Medvedev. Of course Putin. not. It wasn't, you know, it was just hanging on there. Uh, and so they did, and he came back and said, uh, we'll set it up. And we did. And it was like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Third Man. Like, you know, the only thing that was missing was a zither in the background. <laughs> we, we did this in Vienna. And we had one plane land with all of the Russians and families and spies on that plane. And then they landed a plane with all of the uh, spies that we wanted back, you know. Uh, and they exchanged, they landed, they both landed, they exchanged planes, and they took off. And it was really like a scene for me. Joseph Compton and Orson Welles, is that right? Exactly. The third man, wait, 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 I'll watch that tonight after we the remember <laughs> That's all right. Well, now you also 
somewhere around the DOD for the, for the rebalance, as we now say, to, to Asia. Uh, the shoring up of our position there. Uh, more troops in Australia, as I recall, and so on. China has now announced that it's increased its defense spending by 10%. That's probably more. 145 billion, we're at about 121 billion. Uh, are you concerned about China as a military threat? I think, I think we have to be we have to be very aware of what China is doing when it comes to their military. Now, look, China is a country where we have a lot of economic uh, ties, uh, and uh, they're, they're important ties. And I do believe that we need to continue to have a dialogue with the Chinese. And as Secretary of Defense, I thought it was important to meet with my counterparts in China I met with President Xi, I met with other leaders there, and made very clear to them that uh, you know, we have the opportunity as Pacific countries, because they were concerned about our rebalancing to the Pacific. And I said, look, we're a Pacific nation, uh, and we have, and you're a Pacific nation, and you say you're interested in peace and prosperity, that's what we're interested in. There are some common threats in that region. We have a threat from uh, North Korea in terms of, uh, of nuclear proliferation. We have threats from uh, uh, the whole issue of free trade and the ability to be able to have trade operate openly in those seas in that area. We have threats from uh, the whole issue of narcotics and, and drugs uh, throughout that area that we have to confront. We have natural disasters that we have to confront together. So there, there's a whole series of issues where we have common cause. And we need to work together, and I believe that. We invited the Chinese to frankly engage with us in exercises, uh, and they, they agreed to do that. Uh, we had a situation, uh, that I, I'm not sure whether I mentioned in the book or not. Uh, these islands, the, the Japanese are, you know, are, are Shinaku, that's now, right. now they're, they're claiming jurisdiction over these islands, and the Chinese uh, object to that. And uh, the Chinese at one point, we, we understood we're going to send a thousand fishing boats to uh, go to this island. And we thought, oh hell, you know, we've got a thousand fishing boats, all hell is going to break loose. And I remember uh, telling uh, my counterpart there, I said, look, do what you can not to let this happen, because if it does, it'll create a crisis. And the last thing we need is to have a crisis. And they, they to their credit, they agreed to pull back, because they recognized that it was, uh, it was a problem as well. So it's important to continue communication. It's important to continue that dialogue. It's important to have exchanges. And at the same time, very frankly, it's important for us to maintain intelligence on what the Chinese are doing. Because the Chinese are investing more in their defense establishment. They're putting more into space. They're putting more into their navy. They've developed a carrier. They've developed other systems that could be very dangerous if we were to ever have any kind of military conflict. So I think it's very important for us to maintain intelligence. It's very important for us to keep our eye on China. It's very important for us, frankly, to check China when they make these territorial claims, as they are in the South China Sea. They've asserted jurisdiction in the South China Sea that violates international it's rules. It's so, and the Philippines right. aren't happy. And I think we need to make very clear to them that they can't do that. That if they want to be a part of the family of international nations, they've got to respect international rules. We have 
free oceans, we've got uh, the ability to fly in, in airspace. We need to have that kind of freedom if we're going to promote tree, trade and promote our economy. So China is, I think, you know, a potential uh, friend in the future in terms of, of our economy, in terms of dealing with them, in terms of uh, defense cooperation. But I think we always have to keep our awareness up as to what they are doing in order to ensure that they don't take steps that will hurt our security in that region. Mr. Secretary, I've noticed that Eisenhower had three secretaries of defense, Nixon had three, Clinton had three, George W. Bush had two, Obama thus far has had four. Uh, Bob Gates, you, uh, Chuck Hagel, and now Ice Carter, who was one of, who was her deputy. You know, the, is this just a killer job? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, you know, it's a, it's a job that uh, really does require that you, you have to present uh, the best advice you can to the president with regards to national defense. Uh, and, you know, sometimes what is right for the country militarily runs into problems with where the country may want to go diplomatically. And so there's always that kind of give and take that has to take place. And it can, it can take a lot out of it as you try to assure that the right steps are taken in terms of our national security. Look, my, my responsibility as Secretary of Defense, uh, just as it's true with all of those that have been in that job, is to protect the country. Protect the country. I have to protect the safety of the United States of America. And ever since 9-11, I think uh, the responsibility of the Secretary of Defense is to make sure that nobody, nobody attacks this country again. And that means we've got to be strong. That means we have to be militarily strong. That means we have to have uh, the strongest military on the face of the earth. Uh, we do have, I'm very proud of the men and women in uniform that serve this country. They put their lives on the line. Um, and they do a great job for us. We need to maintain that strength. And frankly, it is, it is a tough job because it's not only a question of maintaining a strong defense, maintaining the morale of our men and women in uniform, dealing with wounded veterans, dealing with all of the benefits that have to be provided for our, for our veterans and their families, but it's also engaging in that process to make sure that the right decisions are made by the President of the United States when it comes to our national security. And dealing with Congress. Uh, they're looking at... Oh, uh, extremely <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're discuss they're discussing it right now. John McCain wants $577 uh, uh, billion. Uh, the President, $561 billion. Uh, with sequestration, if it continues, it'll be $523. It's now $521. What could you live with if you were still Secretary? We've already made a lot of cuts before you left. Yeah, no, no. I look, I think, uh, actually, I think the president has recommended uh, about $561 billion, And if you add OCO funds onto that, uh, funds that the, the emergency funds, yeah. It's uh, over $600 billion, which is, uh, which is about right. Uh, we, you know, we've taken cuts in the military. Uh, I was handed, when I became secretary, a number to cut the defense budget of $487 billion, almost $500 billion. And at the time when I was handed that number, I said, look, I'm going to use this as an opportunity 
to try to look at our national defense and try to determine what our national defense should be like in the 21st century. And so I had both military and civilian officials at DOD sit down and look at the different areas, look at what kind of strategy we ought to put in place for our defense. And then we could you know, do the cuts pursuant to that strategy. So we came out with five elements that we thought were, were important. Number one, that we would have to be leaner, but we could be more agile and on the edge of technology. Uh, number two, that we would rebalance our forces to the Pacific and also to the Middle East, because those are the areas uh, that presented the greatest security threat. Number three, that we would have a presence elsewhere using a rotational deployment approach to be able to assist other countries and be able to work with them to develop their capabilities. Number four, that we could fight two wars at one time if we had to. And number five, that we would invest. It wouldn't just be about cutting, but we would invest in special forces, uh, in, uh, in unmanned systems, new technologies, in space, uh, that we would maintain our reserves so that they uh, would be there if we had to go into crisis. So we designed a budget along those lines. Then Congress decides to do this crazy sequester. I mean, sequester was designed to be so crazy that it would force them to come to a deal on the budget. That's why they did it. They, you know, you've seen that, that scene from Blazing Saddles where the sheriff puts a gun to his head and says, if you don't do what I want you to do, I'm going to blow my head off. Well, that's what they did. And so they, they, they sit down, they try to get a deal on the budget, uh, and they don't come to a deal. So they sequester is supposed to happen. Now, you know, let me just describe to you something that I think tells you a lot about uh, Washington and how dysfunctional it is right now. Uh, I, went, I, I go to the president, I went to the leaders of both parties on the Hill, and I said, look, this cannot happen. You're, you're asking for another $500 billion cut out of defense, I mean, right then, and, and probably another trillion over 10 years. I said, you're going you're gonna to weaken the defense of this country. You're going to weaken our readiness when you do this kind of, of slash across the board. So I said, you're going to weaken America if you allow sequestering to, to go into effect. The president said, you're absolutely right. The leaders of both parties said, you're absolutely right. I said, okay. <laughs> so what the hell are you going to do about it? I, you know, because if, if you agree this is damaging to the country, what do we do about it? I said, I'll put another hundred billion in defense savings on the table. If, if you will, you know, reach some kind of deal to de-trigger the sequester. And they said, that's very generous. Nothing happened. Nothing happened, ladies and gentlemen. They didn't go into a room. They didn't sit down. They said, they didn't say, let's cut a deal. They didn't do anything. You know, I'm, I'm reminded, Teddy Roosevelt once said, when faced with a tough decision, the best thing you can do is to make the right decision. The next best thing you can do is to make the wrong decision. The worst thing you can do is to do nothing. They did nothing. And as a result, the country was hurt by it. And so now, uh, you know, the, the Republican budget is saying, well, we're, we're going to maintain sequesters because they need to do that in order to have this gimmickry about you know, trying to balance the budget. So they say, we're going to maintain that. But oh, by the way, we'll, we'll take all of this money on OCO funds 
and that ought to satisfy you. Well, as somebody who worked with budgets, that's a fraud. That's not a good way to budget. And so we're going through this song and dance now that I think ultimately sends a signal to the Defense Department that they are, they are not going to know what the hell they're going to get. And the worst thing you can do when it comes to the defense budget is uncertainty. And that's what we're doing right now. Well, let's hear from all of you. We have uncertainty in the air. Uh, uh, maybe you have questions that will lead to a little more certainty in other areas. I think we have microphones. And the question is, can I see who has a question? Yeah, it's kind of hard to see with the lights. That's right. Okay, well, whoever you are, wherever you are, ask a question. That's great, thank you. Perfect, thank you very much. This one? Do you sell Snowden? 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 What about it? Your, your view on that whole situation? Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I regret that people somehow think that, uh, that Snowden, uh, you know, is some kind of hero for what he did. As far as I'm concerned, he's a traitor for what he did. Uh, the fact is, he's a person who works in intelligence. And, you know, when you work in intelligence, you're bound to maintain classified information. And what he did was he revealed a great deal of classified information. And he says he did it, you know, for, for a good cause. But the problem is, when you do that, it damages our ability to conduct uh, intelligence. And, you know, as a result of what he did, it is much tougher now to be able to track terrorists who were, who were communicating with one another. I mean, they learned from what was released, uh, you know, what we go to in order to be able to track terrorists. And they've adjusted to that. So I think he weakened this country and weakened our ability to try to protect against uh, another terrorist attack. And so, you know, my view is that so Snowden ought to be prosecuted. He ought to face justice here. He really cares about this country. He ought not to be hiding in Russia. He ought to come here and be tried. Okay, another question. I someone is back there. Terrific. Thanks for being here tonight. I work in a financial institution. It gets more difficult every day to protect our networks. Is the government doing enough to make the cost to the bad guys trying to attack our networks? Or are we doing enough as a nation? Say, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the, the part again. Just, just say it again. I work for a financial institution, and it's very difficult to defend our networks against bad guys. Are we doing enough as a country to make it costly for the bad guys to attack us? Uh, you know, I think, uh, I think we have to, we've got we've to really improve our defenses uh, particularly when it comes to what bad guys can do to uh, impact on our financial systems, to impact on other systems that we have in this country. I mean, I, as I said, the biggest threat I see is their ability to use cyber uh, and be able to go after and attack it. I mean, it, we've seen a transition in cyber. Cyber began, uh, the cyber attacks began as exploitation, largely by the Chinese exploiting different industries and going after information. That's what they were doing. Uh, we then took another step into denial of service attacks. Uh, and I think the Iranians were largely involved in the number of denial of service attacks uh, that were used basically to, you know, to, to go after our financial systems, our banks, uh, and others. 
you know, we, we've also seen obviously hackers that are out there that uh, are stealing information as a result of hacking. But it now has become destructive. We saw Iran using what was called the Shamoon virus, literally take down 30,000 computers at Aramco Oil uh, in Saudi Arabia. 30,000 computers were destroyed. And that's what concerns me, is that we've now taken that step into something that could be very destructive. Uh, we have developed defenses you know, within the Defense Department, within the intelligence community, to try to deal with those kinds of threats. The private sector, uh, obviously, is now very aware of that uh, threat, and the private sector is trying to deal with it. But the problem is we aren't working together. And what you need is a public-private partnership to try to share information with regards to these kinds of attacks. And to do that, there's legislation on Capitol Hill that would protect from these companies having liability problems by sharing that kind of information. Well, you have to do that in order to uh, protect countries, so, so protect these companies so that they can share that information. Uh, it's important to have that legislation passed. It's important to have uh, both public and private sectors working together. The reality is that we are not uh, as well prepared to defend against those kinds of attacks as we should be. Uh, and that, I think, is going to be an issue that we are going to have to pay an awful lot of attention to if we really want to protect this country. What about someone from this side of the room? Oh, okay, well, we're down here on the second row. Thank you. I had a question when you and Sylvia were found out that you were asked to be the uh, head of the CIA. You've been in budget and chief of staff, and then all of a sudden, the surprise of that. Could you give us a little bit of color on how that kind of affected you and what your thoughts were going through your head? <laughs> well, I, I was uh, I was uh, visiting I was visiting my son in uh, Minneapolis. We have three sons, two, two lawyers and a doctor. And the doctor lives in Minneapolis. Uh, freezing its tail off. <laughs> uh, and so my wife keeps reminding him of that. Trying to get to move to Monterey. Uh, but I was there, and he took me to a, uh, a Vikings game. I think they were in, in the playoffs that year. And so I went to the Vikings game. And then when I got back, uh, Sylvia told me that uh, I had a call uh, from the president. And so I, I took the call. and. Uh, President-elect said, uh, you know, I, I, Leon, I'd like you to, uh, and, I, and I figured, you know, I worked on budgets, maybe he wanted me to go back, uh, you know, do something in the Treasury, uh, or uh, perhaps, uh, you know, I was working on ocean issues and he might want me to do something at, at Commerce. Uh, I mean, that's where I was, where my head was at. And he says, uh, you know, I, I'd like you to think about becoming director of the CIA. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was a, I was a little intelligence officer, if you, you know, when I got into the army, and uh, you know, I'd done a little intelligence work, and you know, and I, obviously, as chief of staff, you work with intelligence issues. You know, when I was chairman of the budget committee and uh, head of OMB, you worked on intelligence issues as well. Uh, but it wasn't something, you know, that I had uh, you know, developed a lot of expertise on. I said, Mr. President. I said, uh, I, I'm not sure that, you know, that 
that that's necessarily a good fit uh, because of my own background. And he said, no, no. He says, he says, the reason I want you to do it is because I really need somebody to kind of restore the credibility of the operation of the CIA, particularly up on the Capitol Hill, because uh, on the Hill it, it had become very politicized, as every issue has become. Uh, and uh, you know, there was a, an awful lot of controversy surrounding the CIA and some of the things that had gone on at the CIA. And I really want you to restore this credibility. And I said, well, Mr. President, uh, you know, that would be, that would be a challenge. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I really do want to think about it and uh, try to make sense of this. And so, you know, I took the time to talk to my wife. And, uh, you know, I, I, by that time, we had gone back home. We had established the Institute for Public Policy, you know, living in Carmel Valley. I mean, it's a pretty good life. <laughs> I'm suddenly going to pick up and go back to Washington and deal with all that crap back there. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, she said, well, she said, you know, and, and she's always done this, God bless her. She said, you know, the President of the United States, uh, if, if he says, you know, you can do a good job, you really ought to seriously think about it. And I said, yeah, but we've just got the Institute, and what's going to happen? She said, I'll run the Institute. Uh, and she did. Uh, during the time I went back, uh, she ran uh, the Institute and handled it herself. And so, you know, I, I've always, I guess, throughout my life, uh, when, when a president does ask, you take that seriously. And uh, I've decided to do it. And you know what? I don't regret it. I don't regret it a minute. Especially, you know, obviously we get a lot of, a lot of interesting operations at the CIA. And uh, you know, as I said, I dealt with a lot of good people. Uh, but having the ability to do the Bin Laden operation mm -hmm. and get put, you know, uh, have that be a success, uh, that's something I'll never forget. Uh, as a matter of fact, after that operation, I said to myself, this is a good time to get the hell out of Washington. <laughs> and uh, if you want to leave Washington, leave on high. And so, you know, I thought this is a good time to go back home. And the president said, you know, I'd like you to become Secretary of Defense. <laughs> Mr. President, I really like to go home. <laughs> but it was, it was a great experience. I think there were, uh, yes, right here. Yes. We've been told on many occasions that when it comes to Iran, no deal is better than a bad deal. The deal that's presently being considered, would you consider that a bad deal? And if it is, why? Yeah. Um, look, I, I think the test, the test of any kind of agreement that's reached with Iran has to be whether or not we stop them from getting a nuclear weapon. And the president has said that. That's the test. Okay? Haven't we stopped Iran from getting a nuclear weapon? Uh, and so in looking at whatever agreement you know, is ultimately arrived at, you know, from my point of view, the test will be, have we stopped it from being able to develop a nuclear weapon? And obviously, the concerns I have, you know, and this is, you know, a, a lot that will go into the, to, to my judgment here, is, number one, you know, if you maintain a lot of those centrifuges in place, you know, they've got something like 19,000 centrifuges. Uh, that's a hell of a lot of centrifuges. And they obviously have tried, tried to use 
uh, centrifuges in a secret place uh, to try to uh, develop enriched fuel. Uh, so it's not as if uh, you know they're they're a country we can trust in terms of uh, what they say. So if we allow them to maintain a significant portion of those centrifuges, then I worry about that. Because the more they maintain, uh, the more they will have the ability to be able to take some of those centrifuges and perhaps hide them and, and use them for the purpose of enriched fuel. So if, if they maintain a lot of their nuclear infrastructure, uh, that's concerning. Number two, I don't like the idea of a temporary deal. I mean, if, they're, if we don't want them to have a nuclear weapon, we, we shouldn't want them to have a nuclear weapon, not only now, but in the future. And if you somehow say, well, in 10 years, everything will be okay and you can do whatever the hell you want, that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, you know, if you want an arsonist to stop setting fires, you, you don't let them hang on to a can of gasoline and match it. Uh, you basically say, put down the gasoline, get rid of the gasoline, get rid of the matches, and you're not going to do this. So, a lot will depend on whether those kinds of limits, you know, are, are involved in the deal, but, but also the level of inspection that's provided, because frankly, this deal is not going to work at all if we don't have a system of being able to get in and inspect everything they're doing, everything they're doing in terms of their, uh, their nuclear capabilities. Uh, that's something I think that will be tested in terms of the, uh, the provisions in, in any possible agreement. So, uh, my bottom line is, you know, I'm, I'm more than willing to give the President, Secretary Kerry, uh, the flexibility to negotiate this deal, uh, but my test will be whether or not they truly have assured the world that Iran will not have a nuclear weapon. That's what well, you have 30 minutes to get home and watch the Americans on that <laughs> I think we've had a great American here with us tonight. And Mr. Secretary... For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.